1: So one of the top stories overnight? Let's begin there. The president walking out of his second summit with Kim Jong-un after the two leaders could not agree on a deal to relieve North Korea of US sanctions in exchange for giving up much of its nuclear weapons program. Here's the president of the United States.
2: We had some options and at this time we decided not to do any of the options and we'll see where that goes, but it was, uh, it was a very interesting two days. And I think actually it was a very productive two days, but sometimes you have to walk and uh, this was just one of those times. Sometimes
1: you have to walk, and this was just one of those times. Joining us now from Hanoi, Vietnam, is Bloomberg's chief Washington correspondent, Kevin Cerilli Kevin, if it was productive, what exactly did we achieve?
3: Well, I'm not sure that it was productive, Uh, and in fact, even the president himself at the press conference a couple of hours ago said uh, that he was disappointed uh, that that these talks, which had been really trending, rhetorically speaking, quite positively in the 24 hours leading into this, but ultimately, the day was cut short, two hours' worth. They were supposed to have like a joint signing agreement, there was speculation there was going to be a formal ending of the Korean War following the ceasefire of 1953, but Jonathan, This was not the deal at all, or the day, rather, that President Trump was hoping to have. And currently, as we speak, he's flying aboard Air Force One back stateside, and we all know the storyline there with Michael Cohen.
1: So, Kevin, let's talk about how typically these things play out. Typically, the outcome of summits like this are predetermined before the president even boards Air Force One and leaves the White House. This is a very different approach to negotiations with foreign leaders, isn't it?
3: It, it absolutely is, and 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 even just in texting and emailing with analysts back stateside uh, since the press conference. I mean, Jonathan, there's an ability, there's there's the level of unpredictability that I remember President Trump, then Candidate Trump, would talk about on the campaign trail that he wanted to be unpredictable, and we've seen that play out virtually in real time here in Hanoi. Uh, but but these analysts are criticizing that same approach because now. It, there's no step forward in terms of yeah. denuclearization, in terms of defining denuclearization, or in terms of bringing the Russians and the Chinese to the table to get folks to denuclearize. You
0: know, Kevin, since I last spoke to you an hour and a half ago, I'm sure you've taken tea at the Metropole Hotel in Hanoi before you wander back to America. Coffee, Vietnamese coffee. Vietnamese coffee. But, you know, there's a spin to this and all that, and I, everybody's adapting and adjusting. The fact is, It is stunning. The difference in two tweets from the one this morning by the president finessing the moment versus what I saw 19 hours ago, maybe 20 hours ago of a happy, happy, shaking hands pat on the shaking hands thing. I mean, those images are stark. How will the president massage
3: that message when he lands at Andrews Air Force Base? You know, it's it, that's, that's the task ahead. I mean, there's this plant in North Korea, this nuclear plant called young which is a nuclear plant that, that has really gotten a lot of attention for a, a nuclear development site. But the president in his press conference, Tom, also said that they displayed evidence of intelligence that there were other nuclear sites in North Korea. And that caught the North Koreans, according to President Trump, and Secretary Pompeo a bit off guard. And so now uh, the 35-year-old dictator from North Korea He's going to stick around here in Hanoi for, he's supposed to at least, for another 24 hours or so, uh, and presumably is going to be meeting with the Chinese. President Xi has already dispatched his foreign minister to meet uh, with the North Koreans. Mind you, the Chinese presence here in Hanoi was, you, you felt it. Uh, and, and and to yeah. Jonathan's earlier point, the summit that I covered in Singapore had a much different feel. I mean, what was the difference? Was, Let's finish was, with that. What yeah, was the it,
0: difference between Singapore and Hanoi besides the hotel food?
3: You know, I'll, I'll put it simple. I mean, to use your lingo, they didn't rip up the script in Singapore. Oh. They stuck to the script here in Hanoi. They ripped up the script. There was there wasn't even a script to rip up. From from the moment that uh, Kim Kim Jong Un took that stepped off that 60-hour Chinese arranged train ride uh, and arrived at the uh, hotel and kicked out the White House press pool, it, you could tell this was a much different feel.
0: Kevin, thank you so much. Kevin Cirilli, he will be in Hanoi for his important effort tonight, 5 p.m. Uh, nationwide. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. So we plug in Kevin's forward. show now? Yeah, well, you know, it's Thursday. and We're cutting in here to the real yield I guess time. he's had a tough week. I don't have anything to plug. But anyways, <laughs> Mr. Cirilli in Hanoi, and he will give you unique perspective that you will see uh, off the Washington studio, but nationwide.
1: We've got a lot to talk about today. Let's bring in Chris Grassanti, shall we? Grassanti Capital Management CEO. There are some positives to the unpredictable nature of the President of the United States. You can get the Chinese to the table in a way that other people haven't been able to, Chris. There is some downside as well. As we mentioned previously, typically these are predetermined summits. Before you get there, the outcome has already been decided. This is some of the downside from overnight, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think so, Jonathan. Forgive me for being a little bit cynical, but as far as the president's concerned, we're sitting here talking about North Korea instead of talking about Michael Michael Cohen. Cohen. Right, so his little bit of drama at the summit is probably not so counterproductive as as we might think. Um, What I would say is China, as we we looked at the China trade data this morning. Well, let's talk about the data. It's just a disaster. I mean, it's really ugly. So, but that, that... perversely maybe kind of good news because what that says is the Chinese need a trade deal and they need it badly. So for anyone that missed
1: the data from overnight, Chinese manufacturing the PMI coming in at 49.2. I was, was gonna wait this letter
0: and we'll revamp this at five things you need to know and thank you Interactive Brokers for that support. Chris, John Farrell absolutely nailed the slope, the gradient of this PMI exports out of China. I mean, it was extraordinary what you did. What you, you you do no, you got? You got a conduit <laughs> can I, can I to say, Beijing data? No. You got a conduit to Beijing data? Can I just
1: say there is a silver lining yeah. in this very ugly PMI? And, and the slope is, is a generous term. It's like a black diamond there slope. Is, there, yeah. is a, there is a silver lining in this PMI from overnight in China. The business activity expectation component was actually really positive for both the manufacturing PMI and the non-manufacturing PMI. The other piece of good news, I have to say, is that the input prices for this PMI as well is in positive territory. There was a concern that we'd have that 2016 replay I mean, of exporting disinflation. Right? Mm-hmm. But I've really got to look for this, Chris. You've really got to look it hard like you've been to find down. some positivity. Right. So so my real question for the rest of this year, and I think this is where it starts, February, you had a big Chinese holiday. It's really, really difficult to get a clear read on the Chinese economy. We go into March. We're going to get some clean data probably from China, from the United States as well. And my big question for this year, and I think it holds the key to asset classes for 2019, can stimulus out of China bite When does it bite? And how much support does it offer this economy? Because I'm not seeing much of it right now.
4: And I think you need a two-barrel approach. You need the stimulus. That has to work. And you need a trade resolution, at least a temporary one, to get us through
1: the summer. Until then, is the value man optimistic about financial markets because we have ripped through 2019 so far?
4: Absolutely. I mean, we have to be a lot more selective now. There were some terrific bargains the last week of the year, but, you know, we're up almost 15 percent since then. One place that does still seem to have value are financial stocks. Uh, They haven't risen because rates have been benign. If rates as we think will start to ease higher again you could get yeah. some bids in the banks
0: I, I mean in europe i mean one of the other changes john quickly here that we've seen is german 10-year yield has finally lifted up i mean a little bit off the mat in the last two or three days yeah. are you in europe at all
4: no you know we we see the opportunities in the united states as is higher growth and less risk
0: yeah okay chris Cassanti. good to see you chris you. thank you so much what a uh, morning very talking. patient just extraordinary morning This is a joy. This is what we like to do best on surveillance. It may be on the markets, it may be on foreign exchange or bonds, it may be some fancy economists. To define a definitive voice. Lisa Collins is extraordinary. She's out of Oberlin and is pieced together in a shockingly short amount of time, definitive knowledge on their hermit kingdom. You know the photo, I think I saw it in the Boston Globe a million years ago, of Asia lit up this photo from the satellites and there was North Korea, dark and black. She owns, with Victor Cha, the granularity of the economy and the political system of North Korea. And we welcome Lisa Collins uh, with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Lisa, if you could say to our audience the one thing about the stereotype of medieval North Korea, what do we most get wrong?
5: Well, I think we get wrong that there are people inside the country who are... Um, trying to live their lives the best that they can. They are you know they are trying to um, use their own agency to create better lives and to create these markets that you've just talked about. Um, and despite the repression that's happening inside the country, which Kim Jong-un has tried very hard to keep the people from doing, um, is creating these markets, it, is they're living on their own terms, uh, and they're trying to survive the best that they can.
0: Do they want to go across the DMZ or go north across the river, Peter Hessler and Oracle Bones, right? that river years ago, do they want to go north or south and escape?
5: Some of them do. Uh, some of them have tried multiple times to leave the country. They've either been captured and returned to the country and are being held in prison camps or in jails. Mm-hmm. Um, And others are quite content to stay inside their country and try to profit from the markets, try to make, again, um, a living for themselves and for their families um, outside of the reach of the government.
0: Interpret for us the outrage over, you know, the language is intense about the human rights violation of Chairman Kim and the rest of it all. Is it legit? I mean, have the human rights people done their homework and they are looking at outrageous conditions?
5: Certainly. I mean, this has been going on for 60, 70 years. It wasn't just something that happened under Kim Jong-un. It's yeah. been happening under his grandfather and his father. Um, they built these prison camps, these political prison camps, when the nation was first founded. They are very much like the Russian gulags or the Soviet Union gulags, and some in some cases they're probably worse. Um, there was a special commission of inquiry that was formed by the United Nations in 2014, Mm -hmm. which did an extensive study on all of North Korea's human rights violations, came out with a great report at the end of 2000, at the beginning of 2014. And it basically lists all of these horrendous things that have been happening. If
0: you're just joining us today without question, my interview of the day on North Korea, Lisa Collins uh, with a fellow Korea chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I put out on Twitter her website at CSIS and it's just absolutely definitive. Okay, the president with his work today, Lisa, the president yesterday with handshakes and that famous hand pat that he has with Chairman Kim, and the constant theme through it is the president believes there can be a tremendous capitalistic opportunity in North Korea. Do you agree with the president or how would you modify his tone?
5: Well, I I think that there certainly is opportunity in the long term in North Korea as has been mentioned by many analysts, not just President Trump, but North Korea sits at a very um, opportune location in the middle of Northeast Asia, surrounded by some of the greatest, largest economies in all of Asia, even the world. So if the country were to open up and were to create a market economy, a regularized market economy. I mean, there could be tremendous opportunities, but that is only uh, if there is radical right, political change. To, the
0: to cut to the chase, and I did a per capita analysis of the sure. communist countries of Asia, can they become a Laos? I mean, not can they become a mm-hmm. Vietnam, but landlocked Laos is really struggling. Mm-hmm. Their goal is a medieval hermit kingdom is to get to Laos. Does Lisa Collins think they can get to Laos forgetting about Vietnam?
5: Not, not under the current regime. Um, and Kim Jong-un himself would have to make a radical change in his strategy of control over the people and the markets and the country itself. Um, under a different leader, this may be possible. And over a very long time period of time. It could potentially be possible, but it, it might take decades. Um, and the South Koreans would probably have to help in that. They would have to invest a lot. The Chinese would probably want to invest more than they already do. Um, and the other countries in the region, of course, would be involved in uh, development as well.
1: Lisa, have we determined that that is actually their goal?
5: We we do know that Kim Jong-un is very anxious to develop his country, but on his terms. And he's very clearly stated that in all of his speeches and, and his public statements um, going back for years. I think we don't know, what we don't know is whether he is willing to open up in the terms that the United States and the rest of the Western world would like to see North Korea do. And that is to follow the model of Vietnam or even that of China, where there's slow reform, economic reform, and some political opening. Um, Of course, we, you know, as uh, Americans, we would like to see the entire Korean peninsula become free, democratic, and uh, a market society. That is the ultimate goal, uh, eventually. But um, how that happens and whether it can happen under the current North Korean leadership is is definitely a difficult question. Lisa,
1: to what degree does an existential threat validate the regime?
5: It's a great help to validate their um, the rationale for keeping control of their people. That's the ultimate which, reason. Which that begs the question, Kim Lisa, as to
1: why yeah. the leader of North Korea would actually look for any kind of peace deal.
5: Well, so I think the reason might be that if he really is... If, Kim Jong-un is really serious about opening up the country, but he's not exactly sure how to do it and in what, um, you know, what steps he needs to take to do that. First, he has to change the propaganda within the country. He has to change the mindsets of the people um, who have been basically brainwashed over decades. So he has to convince them that there's no longer a threat from the United States. And then he could probably um engage in some opening diplomatic openings people to people more people to people exchanges, maybe again the market openings. but you know changing the internal dynamics propaganda of the country is will be very difficult. um changing the minds of the elites could be very difficult, and then also convincing um Uh, others that the threat from the United States is gone is something that he probably faces a large challenge on.
1: So Lisa from what I'm hearing from you and from the research that's been put in front of me from this morning from from your team is that we are a long long way away from any kind of final fully verifiable denuclearization deal.
5: Yes I think there are experts who estimate that it could take from 10 to 15 years to completely denuclearize North Korea, all of its sites, even if they're being helpful um, and engaged in the process of dismantlement of their nuclear weapons program. Of course, if they throw up roadblocks, walk out of talks, um, you know, decide not to participate in in this process, then it could take much longer, if at all. Um, Yeah. So it's a very difficult Uh, situation right. to imagine.
0: John and I have had the privilege of, of speaking to all sorts of Asia heavyweights, just as one, the giant Jonathan Spence of Yale University. Lisa Collins, what's it like working with Victor Cha? I, I mean, what what is it like working with the dean of all of Korea? I mean, Dr. Cha is extraordinary, mm-hmm. right?
5: Yes, he, he is an extraordinary um, analyst. He is very, very well versed in Korean affairs. So, what gets
0: um, him upset? What's get you? You and him are sitting mm-hmm. around, uh, you know, talking up uh, Korea. What is What is the topic that the two of you get most upset about within the mainstream media on North Korea?
5: Well, I think what is upsetting to some degree is the lack of focus on human rights, and that's something that he, does um, get him um, somewhat. Disturbed from time to time. And I think he tried to write about it in the um, run up to this summit is the lack of focus or the lack of attention that was being paid to human rights. And I think that's something that we hope, right that will continue to get attention um, despite what's going on the de- on the denuclearization right. front or the negotiations. So we should not forget no. that North Korea is still a prison state. It's a state that um, has to survive by repressing its own people and that there should be movement and openness, discussion yeah. with North Korea about um, making progress on those fronts at the same time that we're also trying no. to dismantle their nuclear weapons program. This is another
0: one hour conversation and we'll do that with Lisa Collins and maybe with Dr. Shah as we can. Uh, as well just extraordinary and somehow john i think we'll continue a discussion on uh, the greater korean uh, peninsula with csis the center for strategic and international studies we're thrilled to bring you lisa collins Not enough time right now with someone who's joined us before. Catherine Moon is at Brookings, but that barely describes her iconic position at a small school outside Boston, known as Wellesley College. To bring you up to speed, folks, Wellesley College literally pioneered Asian studies a zillion years ago. Professor Moon, thrilled to have you with us uh, uh, today. If you were if you were lecturing. Freshmen at Wellesley—they're so eager to get in front of the Asian Studies program uh, at Wellesley. What's the first thing you would show that that pushes against our common myths on Korea?
6: Common myths against uh, uh, common myths on North Korea that we need to yeah. to unveil. I would say the first thing is it's a real country that plays hardball diplomatic strategies and has a domestic audience that he needs to pay attention to. Even though it's a dictatorship, uh, Kim Jong-un does not run it alone, and he needs to have the backing of especially the military and some members of the population.
0: Help us with the president's constant theme as the summit fell apart in two days ago when there was happy handshakes. And the constant theme is his belief that North Korea can be a force of capitalism Going forward, can it do the Asian tiger thing? Can it be like Laos or Cambodia and move forward? Or is there a different equation that you see?
6: I think I think uh, Donald Trump is doing the right rhetoric to try to raise the expectations of the North Korean people and its leadership to step up. And it is aligned with Kim Jong-un's own desire to develop his economy. That is sincere. Um, many observers uh, believe that. But in terms of how the question is, are they capable of growing economically into another dragon or tiger? How fast and uh, how fast and how stable is the question? And I think those are the two areas where I would take issue with Mr. Trump. Um, One thing I want to mention is that, you know, even though the news headlines say that this is a failed summit because Trump walked away with nothing and basically the negotiations broke down. I look at it a little differently. I think actually this was a good summit in the sense that it was constructive. We finally got to see that that Mr. Kim Jong-un can play real hardball and they have real clear um, bars about what it takes for the U.S. to actually work with North Korea toward denuclearization, which is full lifting of the sanctions. Um, and I think that it's very good for Mr. Trump to realize that his own personal charm offensive has its limits and that now you need to leave it to the people who are experts to really thrash this out. And it'll take a, a lot of time.
4: So Professor Moon, who do you think needs a deal more, the U.S. or North Korea here?
6: Well, the U.S. needs a deal and the question is, is it Mr. Trump needing a deal? He wanted uh, mostly uh, a progress toward a Nobel Prize for himself. That is not something that was hidden. Um, but also, I think for the U.S. government, if we are serious about um, preventing nuclear yeah. escalation, military escalation in East Asia, and trying to bring some level of cooperation and peace on the peninsula after 70-plus years, yes, it's very, very important. And it is considered, North Korea is considered a major nuclear, major security threat to the United All States. Right. Um, but North Korea needs U.S. Uh, give because Kim has to have economic development in order to survive. And so uh, both sides have a pretty loaded game here.
0: Okay, we'll have to leave it there. We're just too short of time. We need to get you back on sh- soon uh, as we can. Catherine Moon, she is at Wellesley College in the Brookings Institute. There on uh, the many uh, Koreas. as open. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene, and we really look towards the longer days of spring, which means the IMF meetings, and we really kick off here, our our movement towards those important International Monetary Fund meetings uh, that we'll see along in April. And we do that strong with the head of their Western Hemisphere Department, Alejandro Werner, uh, with us now of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, I wanna begin a discussion on Venezuela and Argentina, but I first have to pause and that you took your PhD at MIT with one of the giants, Rudy Dornbusch, uh, in economics. He was of a profound impact at IMF. Would Professor Dornbusch of years ago, would he recognize this IMF today or is it a different institution?
2: It's definitely a different institution, but that maintains the core of its mission. So I think he will recognize and I think he will salute the changes that have taken place given that he was a person that really put together strong theory with policy implications and applications of that theory.
0: We had the privilege in Davos of speaking literally the day of these changes in Venezuela with Ricardo Haussmann of Original Sin and a lot of other theory and and that as well. Should Ricardo Haussmann and you and should Madame Lagarde be optimistic now of a constructive solution to Professor Haussmann's Venezuela?
2: Well, that's a more of a political question than economic. We're good at that. That's why I the think, IMF hates yeah. me. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, uh, look, I think there's a strong will by Venezuelan society to start uh, fixing things in their country. There's a mm-hmm. strong will in in the international arena to support Venezuela in this transition. So hopefully uh, we we will have a government in Venezuela that reaches out to the international community and, the, and that puts in Fine. place the policies to fix this.
0: Can you apply what you did in Argentina to Venezuela or is it so broken the IMF has to use a different path?
2: It's, it's, it's clearly a very different situation. It's a different path. Uh, it's a, one of the most complex uh, crises that we have seen. It combines a, a humanitarian crisis Uh, The the complete destruction of the productive network of the economy, a a hyperinflation, a debt crisis, and a migration crisis. Mm. So we have dealt with some of them in each of the cases that we go through. But the five of them together, it's a very Mm -hmm. complex situation that it will need the efforts of many institutions, but I mean, it can obviously be done.
4: Well, a success story certainly for the IMF was the Ukraine recently, where creditors received almost par on their bonds. But I think, you know, even I, it's probably unlikely that that would occur in Venezuela. So, what, what did the creditors? What did they expect in any type of restructuring here? What is they? What, what do you think is kind of the how this will play out?
2: I think what they what they expect, it's a a, a, a policy package that actually puts the country in a sustainable path. I think uh, if you look at the pricing of the bonds today, obviously nobody is expecting a, a full recovery, but what they what they would expect, and that's why they're holding onto these bonds, is basically that eventually a package will be put together that a country with the wealth that Venezuela has can lay out the policies to go back to a sustainable, inclusive growth process that eventually will give some value to those bonds and people will have some upside given the policies uh, put together and given the growth path that the, that the economy can get into.
4: To what extent can the IMF be a part of that? What's the balance sheet of the IMF? How much can the IMF come in and support whatever change uh, Takes place.
2: Obviously, we we can we can, and I I I, I think hopefully, Venezuela will see in us an institution that can help us, give them the international experience on many areas on how to put policies together, can give them the financial part of the financial support that they will need to grow themselves out of these problems. There will be a lot of. Needs for investment in the oil and non-oil sector, but also needs to increase the consumption of the population that it's at, at very low, low levels, generating very deep health problems. And as I said, we have the expertise, and we do have an, yeah. an important balance sheet to help and finance this transition.
0: What is the state of populism in South America? You do the Western Hemisphere, yeah. and that's a pretty broad mandate. But the state of political unrest in Europe or this, you know, the story in America as well, the state of populism that we see in South America and how it links into prosperity. Have you done work on this?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question because, I mean, Latin America in this, let's call it populism cycle and defining populism, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a fussy concept. Uh, took place before what we're seeing in some advanced economies. At the end of the day, we saw a, a, a significant burst of regimes that try to spend their way out of the deep social and economic problems that some Latin American nations have on the back of huge income coming from the commodity boom. So the Venezuela is the extreme on the back on the, of, of right. the oil boom we saw a huge increase in government expenditures, etc. that when uh, commodity prices collapses, then these regimes were unsustainable. No. So th- those are the changes that we have seen in Argentina, in, we're seeing now in Ecuador, and now we're seeing the deep problems in, in mm-hmm. Venezuela. So we're seeing the last stages of of that process.
0: We have to leave it there, but we're looking forward to seeing you in Washington. Looking
2: forward to seeing you in the spring. Alana
0: Werner, thank you so much. He is Western Hemisphere Department leader for the International Monetary Fund. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen,